Welcome to the Aporia podcast. This week, Bo Weingart speaks with Professor David Geary. Remember, you can listen to this podcast on all the major platforms. If you like the show, you'll love the Aporia magazine. Find the link in the show notes, along with our Twitter and a link to the bonus questions we ask our guests. Hi, I'm Bo Weingart, and I'm here with world-renowned expert on sex differences, Dr. David Geary, also happens to have been my brother's PhD advisor. Um, so basically, we you've talked about these things many times, but maybe we can touch on some new things or have some pushback or interesting conversation. We want to talk about sex differences and perhaps um, at the end, the rise of transgenderism. So the biggest question we can ask here is, why do we have two sexes? And what are sexes, I suppose? <laughs> That's a great question and something there seems to be, for some odd reason, a lot of confusion um, on the on these days. So the um, study of sexual reproduction versus asexual reproduction, where you just clone yourself, has been going on for um, a long time. Uh, sexual reproduction evolved, you know, one and a half billion years ago or so. Um, and the basic point is, to um, <clears throat> switch genes, you know, to swap genes so that you create more variability in offspring, uh, more variability in offspring to help with um, the immune system, to mix it up, to keep ahead of parasites, or to create offspring that are variable and thus some would be better adapted to changing social or ecological conditions. There, there's a number of models um, for that, but it's been around for a very long time. Once, once we get the complex organisms, we just have two sexes. That's it. There's two. Um, there are males with, um, small gametes, sperm, and they produce a lot of them and females with larger gametes, uh, eggs, ova, and they produce fewer of them. Uh, the sperm evolved because, you know, you get a lot of tickets, so to speak, with that. You have a lot of opportunities to fertilize, um, you know, the ova of, of other individuals. And then the ova are um, selected for because they have a lot of uh, calories, nutrients, and other sorts of things kind of stored in them, which allows the, the developing embryo uh, a better chance of survival those in between that can't compete with the smaller, higher number sperm or the larger, you know, better, uh, um, more packed with nutrients, calories, and, and so forth, um, eggs. So you have disruptive selection where you just get smaller gametes and larger gametes. And we call those males and females. And that's true for insects, birds, mammals, whatever you want to say. <clears throat> Right. So that, that the technical term for different size gametes is anisogamy. And so what you're saying right. is that there, is, so hypothetically, just to get abstract, hypothetically, could we have four sexes, but it's just not actually competitive to have in-betweens? Well, at, at some point, you know, maybe going back quite some ways, there may have been gametes of various sizes, and probably that's the case. But competitively, a lot of smaller ones or big, healthy, you know, big ones, the eggs, 
mm-hmm. had the advantages. So if there was four at one point, um, anything in between the extremes is gone. They're, they're right. just not, not competitive. Right. So the, the organism with the larger sex cell is called female and the organism Correct. with the smaller sex cell is called male. Now, right. a different question that's related to this is mm-hmm. why, why are most vertebrae, at least, um, vertebrates, why are they what's called gonochoric or that is to say not hermaphroditic? Like one, one could imagine you have both sex cells in the same organism. Is there a compet there, there must be an evolutionary reason for this, but do we have a good idea of what that is? Yeah. The, the evolutionary, well, um, I, I think with, you know, with the more complex organisms, uh, specialization, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it favors specialized, males specialized to compete for mates and, you know, have the opportunity for multiple mating partners and females are specialized to, to invest more, uh, in offspring. You, you do get species where you can get, um, a sex change during the lifetime, mm-hmm. some reef fish and, you know, there, there's, um, ecological or social sex determination. Um, and it does occur. So you get really big if you're a reef fish and maybe you could transform from a female to a male. Um, but most fish don't do that because the mechanisms required to make that transformation are very complex and things could, could go wrong with it. Right. So it does occur occasionally, but, but it's, the, but it's risky. <clears throat> right. So, so this specialization is important when we consider sexual selection. So, sexual selection well you can tell us what sexual selection is but and then like uh let's think about how how, why does sexual selection lead to predictable although although not determinative sex differences right yeah so once you have two sexes the males and the females you have and in variation sexual reproduction creates variation in individuals which means some males are more competitive or desirable than others. Same with the females. And so now you have variation in potential mates, and now you have competition for your preferred mate. And if you have the option, you have the ability to discriminate between different suitors. And that's sexual selection. You have competition for mates and discriminative mate choices. And that follows once um, sexual reproduction evolves. And there are various arguments about this and theory, like sub theories under, I guess you would say like natural selection, sexual selection is a subset of natural selection. And then there's a theory called parental investment theory that attempts to explain predictable variation between the sexes. So in, let's just focus more on mammals because then we can get to humans. There, there's a general pattern that we see such that men tend, males, excuse me, tend to, uh, invest more energy in reproductive opportunities, whereas females tend to invest more energy in reproduction itself or in taking care of offspring. Um, could, could you say something about why that might be the case and what sexual, uh, what, I'm sorry, what parental investment theory argues? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if if you have a slow developing um, offspring, you need some type of parental investment, which usually involves protection from predators and some type of postnatal provisioning. And generally, the sex, whether it's males or females, um, if we're mammals, it's typically females. The, the, the sex that invests the most in parenting tends to be the most discriminating in terms of mate choices. It's like, you know, you, they get to pick the guy who they're going to, you know, uh, sire, sire an offspring with, and they're going to make most of the investments. So they're picky and they tend not to be as competitive. The sex that uh, invests less in parenting tends to invest more in competition for multiple mates. Now for mammals, um, internal gestation and postpartum suckling you know, biologically biases biases females into heavier parental investment than males. Um, and that kind of sets the stage for generally more competitive, low parental investment males and more parental, more discriminating, discriminating mate choices and less competitive females. Right. So we find this in, in many mammals, right? Maybe, maybe there are some rare exceptions. Um, but mm-hmm. with, with, with humans, do we find the same pattern in humans or are humans somehow unique from most mammals? Yeah. Uh, humans aren't as unique as many people like to think. Um, yeah. So in about 10% of mammals or so, you do get some male investment in uh, mm-hmm. offspring and it happens in you know a fair number of uh, primates usually protection from from infanticide or other types of social um, harassment so some type of male kind of engagement with offspring is not too unheard of in primates although we don't see it at all in chimpanzees or bonobos who are our closest relatives so in that case something is a bit odd about humans in that we are um, less typical in terms of men providing uh, more resources than 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 is typical. Mm-hmm. So, when when let's talk more specifically about sexual selection because I have a sort of theory about this, and you can see what you think about mm-hmm. this. So, sexual mm-hmm. selection is often divided into inter and intrasexual selection, right? So intrasexual selection is competition within the sex to be the sex Mm -hmm. that's dominant. Inter is competition for the choice of the other sex. Um, So in birds, for example, we find that the males tend to be rather garish, if you know, bright colors, spectacular trains, etc. In humans, Many people have argued that, if anything, the females are the more decorated sex. That is to say, they seem to have sexual ornamentation that's specifically designed to attract men. Do you think that that's true? And if that is true, does that suggest a slightly different pattern of sexual selection for humans? Yeah, yeah, good good question. So for humans, um, the... The, the evolutionary history of intense male-male competition is very clear uh, in mammals mm-hmm. or in, in, well, in mammals, but, but also in, in primates more specifically, intense physical male-male competition associated with larger, more aggressive, more muscular males and females. 
um, slower development, shorter lifespan, a variety of things that clearly fit with humans. And then, you know, uh, history, uh, population genetics, and other things clearly support this been intense male-male competition. Um, so women prefer males. There are physical traits that are associated with being successful with male-male competition, being taller than average, uh, muscular, upper body, and so forth. And, and those might be considered ornament-type things. We don't have large trains, or I guess we could put mm-hmm. You know, you know, nice ties and stuff, but that, um, <laughs> right. but, but there's also male choice and, um, preferences for certain characteristics in females, which, which might be the ornaments you're talking about related to age, some body shape types of things, breast features and right. so forth. And, and, and those are ornaments in a sense that they are. Um, correlated with with fertility. Right. So I've often thought it was interesting. If you took a male and a female mallard duck, for example, the male is by Mm -hmm. far the more attractive bird, as it were. Whereas if you take uh, men and women, I think most people, Mm -hmm. and in fact, I've read studies that have shown that even women think other women are more attractive. And that, that to me was a puzzle when I first started getting into this because, and we can talk about this, is that there is a very interesting book that I think you and I both think is somewhat wrong <laughs> called The Mating Mind by right. uh, uh, interesting thinker Jeffrey Miller. And so this, right. it's more of a mutual mate choice that he forwards there, but mm-hmm. he did tend to emphasize female mate choice and that, you know, his argument was that a lot of male cultural artifacts were designed to attract women and that women were choosing these men. And so I, I was, I've always struggled to reconcile, well, why does it seem to be the case that women are more decorated, suggesting that they're competing for men's investment somehow, but there's this emphasis in classical evolutionary psychology on female choice. Do you think that that emphasis was a bit misguided? Yeah, I, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. So in, in a modern culture, you do have kind of free choice in a sense that parents and other kin aren't actively involved in choosing your um, spouse. But if we, we go to traditional context, hunter-gatherer, and even more so for agricultural societies, uh, and, and even some developing societies today, uh, marriages are arranged. So especially first marriages. Mm-hmm. So the the opportunity for female choice or male choice to kind of influence things is is reduced by um, social constraints. We still do have some female choice in terms of in with second marriages and um, with affairs. You know, if they don't like the guy they're they're um, right. hooked up with. I, I think the the attractiveness difference you know that women are more attractive on average than men the distributions are skewed so all the the but ugly people are guys and the <laughs> right the, uh, you know and and the more attractive people tend to be women disproportionately women I, I i think that just suggests that there's been um advantages for women being attractive whether the men pick them directly or whether they're moms or dads or other kin they're going to want to pick um, women who are 
have cues associated with fertility. And that would be some of the attractiveness types of cues that, that you're talking about. In fact, there, there's a study on that saying that you know, attractive women generally um, have the option to marry earlier. If they get divorced, mm-hmm. they're more likely to remarry and so forth. So there, mm-hmm. there are direct reproductive correlates with physical attractiveness in women, much less so for men. It's more about status and resource control. Right. So uh, is perhaps one way to think about this, that what women are competing for is not investment in, in the sense of sperm. That is to say, you know, there's the, the joke about how do you have sex at a bar? If you're a woman, you come there and say, I want to have sex, right? <laughs> like it's not, it's not very difficult. What they're actually competing for though is paternal investment. Right. So, so th- there is actually intense female competition in the sense that they're competing over a limited resource, and that limited resource is male investment in offspring and in the family name, etc. I think you called it lineage enhancement. I like that term. Yeah, yeah. So once um, men or males for whatever species, once they begin to provide a limited resource that they can only invest in one or a couple of females at a time. And if that resource influences um, uh, offspring outcome, survival, or later competitiveness, you're going to get female-female competition. Uh, and we, we know for certain that men's investment in many contexts, perhaps not all of them, but many contexts actually can substantively reduce um, child mortality risks and increase long-term social competitiveness. And men differ in how much they have to offer uh, women and their right. families. There's, there's considerable variation. And so it's not surprising that women compete um, for the attention of these men. And, and they compete for the attention of these men because men <clears throat> will focus on certain physical characteristics that they find attractive and they find them attractive because they're correlated with, you know, how many kids you've had before, how many kids you're likely to have in the future. Right. Right. Yeah. So I've often called the, uh, the, the Danny DeVito problem. I don't know if you're familiar with Danny DeVito, but Danny DeVito has probably had remarkable reproductive success despite being a rather, short and unpleasant looking human being, no offense to him intended. So what this suggests is what women are competing for more than these traits that are associated with attractiveness in men is the resources that they have. And one thing that Danny DeVito was not lacking was resources, right? Right. Yeah. So they, they, they're interested in fungible or movable resources. So, uh, you know, a fancy degree from Harvard is nice, but what really matters is income, that the, right. the income can be invested and transferred. Social status is yeah. important as well. <laughs> One thing I was going to ask so, is, uh, if you compare, what do you think about comparing the status signal so the Harvard degree, as you mentioned, to the actual resources. So you're saying they would care more about the resources and that the Harvard degree is basically just a signal that down the road, I'll get resources. Right. 
pretty much if if you look at um who gets married and who's preferred you know actually actual mate decisions you know mar- marriage sorts of things once you control for signals it, it's really the income the resources mm-hmm. that make the difference mm-hmm. so the 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 degree is just a signal uh that like yeah this guy's a good bet right now, do you think that that undermines the sort of fitness indicator hypothesis? Because the benefit is actually the, the direct benefit of resources and not the indirect benefit of what they would call good genes. Right. Well, probably the ability to compete and to acquire, um, you know, culturally important signals and culturally important resources is at least somewhat of an indicator of things like physical health, uh, cognitive abilities, mm-hmm. uh, social skills, and so forth. So they, they, they have to contribute to um, the, the ability to be successful in, in any, any competitive context. So I suppose the extreme question would be if you put these two against each other. So I, I've often thought, for example, if you put like a really uh, talented writer against Stephen King, who's very successful at writing these very mediocre novels, the genetic fitness indicator hypothesis might suggest that you you the the better pro stylist should win the mating competition, right? Because that's an indicator that I'm you know I must be smarter or more clever. But I think yeah. in the real world, Stephen King's winning that contest 99 times out of 100. Yep. Yep. I, I, I agree. It's, it's, okay. the, <laughs> it's the, 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 uh, the resources and the status. I mean, if you're Stephen right. King's wife, right. you, acquire, you acquire status um, regardless right. of, of whether you like his books or not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we have these differences in humans. We have sexual selection. Now, the, the next important question, and the one that was, it, and it apparently is still somewhat taboo and something that you've dealt with for most of your career is, do these differences in uh, physical phenotypes and bodies, do they also extend to the human brain that is to say do we have sex differences in the brain and more importantly sex differences in the mind that is sex differences in cognition that are reliable and predictable yeah um absolutely no no question of that um there are now brain imaging studies of uh, human fetuses you know four to six months or so and you can look at spontaneous brain activities which are um, an indication of how networks are being integrated together, you know, the long, uh, the, the large, you know, mm-hmm. putting together multiple brain regions simultaneously. Um, and there are differences in these spontaneous brain activity patterns in four to six months old. There are sex differences in those. If you look at gray and white matter patterns in the brain, you know, some areas of the brain, there's no difference. Other areas, there's big differences. And what's important is not so much the individual parts, but how all of those parts right. are organized organized together. And so if you look mm-hmm. at the whole picture, you can identify whether a brain belongs to a boy or a girl or a man or a woman, probably close to 95% of the time looking at the overall mm-hmm. pattern, which is about what you get looking at facial features. 
Uh huh. So is, is that is that with is that like a trained doctor or is that an algorithm that's doing the the classifying? That's just a straight kind of dumb algorithm that's doing the classifying. Mm-hmm. So it so it might mm-hmm. overestimate a bit. So then you can fall back on these brainwave, you know, the, these network activation patterns. And there, the classification is not quite, there hasn't been as many of those. The classification is not quite as good, but it's still like 85% mm-hmm. or so. Um, okay. So, yeah, it, clearly uh, male and female brains differ. There's about 2,000 genes in the human brain that are differentially expressed in men and women. So, I mean, mm-hmm. the argument against that is, is just nonsense. I, I don't, there, there's no evidence. Right. So what are, what do you think are perhaps like some of the most important on average cognitive differences between uh, men and women? Yeah. So, so there's different ways to look at this traditionally in psychology Going back decades, people have looked at sex differences in math, language-related things, and visual-spatial things. Uh, language-related would include, like, reading. Um, and, you know, and some of those are interesting. But if we step back and look at it from an evolutionary perspective, you know, math and reading are evolutionarily novel competencies mm-hmm. that aren't going to be universal and aren't going to automatically emerge without some type of schooling intervention, you know, instruction and so forth. So they're not as interesting as to me anyway, um, as more universal skills like language abilities, Mm -hmm. reading facial expressions, the ability to navigate from one place to another, understanding how you can use objects as tools and so forth. So these are more universal sorts of things and sorts of things that I focus on in, in my book, Male, Female. Um, I've argued that women, girls and women are generally better at cognitive competencies that enable one-on-one social dynamics, you know, kind of managing the mm-hmm. here and now social dynamics and forming um, one-on-one friendships and relationships, you know, the, the, the intimacy sorts mm-hmm. of things and you and using social knowledge to manipulate um, the s- social patterns in self-serving ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, men, men, on the other hand, tend to be better at uh, visual spatial sorts of things, things involved in navigating large distances. Our um, upper bodies are built for uh, blunt force weapons and projectile weapons. So men are better at mm-hmm. you know, targeting things, tracking things that move in space, dodging things thrown at them. Right. They're better at um, mechanical reasoning, making tools, which is primarily a male thing in traditional cultures. So, so, so this those, dodging difference yeah. is an interesting mm-hmm. one, right? So, so what yeah. is the effect size and the difference in the ability to dodge an object? Yeah. So uh, really, really cool study done, done that by um, uh, Dan Kamura. Um, I guess about 30 years ago now, they, they got one of these uh, machines that shoot tennis balls that you can practice mm-hmm. with. And mm-hmm. they um, shot them at undergraduates. Um, probably not, not <laughs> too bad. Like not, not too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like fun. 
couldn't, yes. couldn't, couldn't do that. Couldn't, couldn't do that these days. And so that right. they shot, if I'm remembering correctly, like 30 tennis balls at them. And they're just kind of seeing how, mm-hmm. how well they blocked them. And men were much better than women. It was a fairly large effect size. But um, I think there was a ceiling effect on there because the men blocked like 27 out of 30. They blocked most of them. So the differences right. were under underestimated there. Um, if right. you look at perceptual cognitive types of skills, you know, tracking the movement of things in space and looking at when they're going to intercept and so forth, you, you get fairly large differences. Um, there were you know, maybe nine out of 10 guys depending on how fast things are moving and so forth, they're better than the average woman. Right. And another huge sex difference is throwing ability, which is of course a common stereotype, which is why people used to say, at least you throw like a girl. I don't know if that insult is acceptable anymore. Um, Well, one question then is, Mm-hmm. What does that suggest that men are so much better at throwing and at tracking uh, uh, and dodging? Does it suggest that uh, mobile warfare, <laughs> throwing things at other men, that that was fairly common? Yeah, I, that's that's what I've argued. So if you look at the you know the shoulders and the uh, the arms, they're designed um, to throw things. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and hit things, and men men are very much better. And and even when you get you know to preschoolers, the boys are can throw farther, um, harder, and more accurately than the girls. Um, e- even you know in uh, mm-hmm. three year olds, as I said, and then by the time they hit um, nineteen or twenty or so, there's very little overlap in the in the distributions of those of those skills um some people have argued mm-hmm. that it's in fact the original argument was well that's because men hunt and women gather and hunting often involves use of projectile weapons whether it's spears or rocks or um, bow and arrows you still have to do the trajectory and uh so forth but the hunting doesn't explain the defensive skills that the guys have you know you're hunting a deer he's, right you know not going to get irritated and throw rocks at you and so you don't need to dodge them um but other other guys other guys will do that you know they're 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 going to fight back and right use similar weapons to yours so i think that the hunting came later um and the the intense male male competition mm-hmm. including these weapons there and in fact there, there's a recent study a couple of years ago looking at um neanderthal and um early human um, uh, skeletons and they found mm-hmm. that you know somewhere like 10 to 20 percent of the males had uh, forearm breaks and skull fractures uh, where very few of the female skeletons had mm-hmm. those so that that's clearly a, a blunt force sort of thing or you know rock hitting in the head okay so we have um, a lot of differences these are well documented mm-hmm. um, but they still cause a lot of contentiousness. And Mm -hmm. I know that you've dealt with some of this contentiousness for your long and illustrious career. Mm -hmm. And maybe things are even getting worse in some ways, even while our knowledge is getting better. 
-hmm. So this is a more speculative question, but I think it's one worth contemplating, which is why do you think this topic, which seems so straightforward? I mean, of course, some of the details we're going to have debates about, but the, the basic picture is pretty straightforward. And yet it's so muddy in public discourse and debate. Um, you know, for example, we'll just, I say there was that, um, what was that? Chelsea Conaboy, I think, New York Times article. This is a good example of this, which argued that the maternal instinct is not innate. And this is like some, you know, iniquitous conspiracy that men are foisting upon women or something to stay out of the workplace. So why do you think yeah. this is? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the patriarchy again. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the, the basic facts on sex differences, in my mind anyway, are clear, but the debate continues, mm -hmm. uh, especially in, in the public sphere. I think it really comes down to there are um, women are pretty variable in terms of their preferences, mm -hmm. in terms of trade-offs, whether they want to compete in the cultural sphere, or the work sphere, or so forth, whether they want to be homemakers, or whether most would prefer something in between. They want to do something outside the house, but they also want to focus on family and stuff. But so you have 15% or so of women who are really work focused and status culturally focused versus three mm -hmm. out of four or so, or two out of three men. So the proportion of men that are really focused on status related cultural success sorts of things are much higher than women. But that, but some subset of those work focused women are very competitive and um, envious and resentful of men being disproportionately successful in areas that they think they uh, want to compete in. And so that creates all this disinformation and um, alternative explanations. It can't be that men just work harder or are better at certain types of things than women. Right. It must be some type of conspiracy that is keeping women down or, or even, you know, women's, you know, women go into different fields than men do. And that results in, you know, wage differences and other sorts of things. Um, and in many cases, it's a big contributing factor is just females, women's choices of what they want to do. Right. So do you think the thesis so I like that explanation. Do you think that the thesis that in some ways, not completely, of course, because I think there were perfectly legitimate reasons for feminism, but in some ways, feminism, you could argue, is an ideology promulgated by this subset of hyper-competitive women. And actually, it, it may contradict the interests of a lot of the other women who are not interested in competing in typically male domains. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right, that it's um, women who are competing in domains that males tended to compete in. They're joining the workforce and all of that, which which is fine, I think. I think everybody should work a little bit, actually. Um, but there's also this envy there and resentment that women are underrepresented in certain areas um, that creates that, then a lot of political manipulation, political spin. There's a lot of money to be made developing programs to get women to 
girl, little girls to code more or go into engineering or so forth. And, right. you know, and when they were first initiated, there was a jump in the number of women mm -hmm. uh, going into these fields, but it's been pretty flat for the last 30 years. I think it's kind of exhausted it, but the push for it remains. And do you think it's fair to say that now there may be another sort of ideological force that's muddying this topic, which is this idea that there are, you know, maybe three, four, five different genders and that like this sex binary is in fact itself a myth or an illusion? <laughs> I don't, yeah. I'll just give you an example. That there was this article called The Multimodal Models of Animal Sex. Breaking binaries leads to a better understanding of sex. I don't know if you saw this preprint, but it was it was a rather perplexing article, but that's what I'm talking about, kind of, is that idea. Yeah, I, I saw that. And it's perplexing that it's that it's making its way into into, into mainstream biology um journals. You know, my my take on a lot of these things, uh, including the, the 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 New York Times article you mentioned in the associated book, mm -hmm. is that you know a lot of these arguments, books, articles, or whatever, are in a sense autobiographies and mm -hmm. justifications for whatever they think is important, and it kind of moves into kind of a self-serving narrative to justify whatever, you know, not liking your baby as much as other women like babies or right. whatever it is. It's not based on actual evidence and science. It's based on pushing your own self-interest. And in this case, really muddying the water scientifically. Right. And so this there's kind of been this new what some people have called gender ideology, which I think is an appropriate term for this, this idea that I, I guess the idea is that gender is completely distinct from sex and that even sex itself might not be binary there. I mean, some people have made ideas about yeah. con, there's a continuum. So let's just be clear here. When we mm -hmm. say sex is a binary, how can we be so confident about that? Like, what does that mean when we say that? Well, I mean, it, it goes back to our early discussion. There's males and females, sperm and egg sorts of things. So at the, <laughs> right. at the very, very basic biological level, there's males and females. Sexual reproduction right. results in within sex variation. And so there yes. are, you know, if we just go to humans, there are guys that don't behave in male typical ways. And there are women who don't behave in female typical ways. If we look at the brain patterns that I mentioned earlier of boys and girls or men and women, you know, the, there is a male typical pattern and most of the guys are kind of skewed over there, but there's a long tail there. There's a, some guys who have female typical brain patterns and female typical right. interests and cognitive abilities. That's just natural variation that results right. from sexual reproduction. It's not evidence for a distinct sex. They're right. still males, but so, they just are not as male typical as other males or vice versa. Right. So what we might say is that the... Um, the the sort of masculine and feminine, we could probably conceptualize that as a continuum, 
but the underlying reality of the gametes, maybe as a continuum, maybe a, you know, whatever we could, <laughs> we could mix that up. But like, um, the underlying gamete differences, that's what sex, that's how we define sex. And there right. are very few exceptions. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. that's a good transition to and well, and with before I ask you like a mm -hmm. couple parting questions with um, just this gender ideology and mm -hmm. the I guess you could call it a, an explosive increase in the number of people, <clears throat> especially girls who are identifying as that is natal girls who are identifying as transgender. So right. you made the argument in a recent article that you think that um, girls may be particularly vulnerable to this because of sex differences and mm -hmm. because of the way girls evolved for like their social behavior and the way that they conform and they're more agreeable, et cetera. Could you mm -hmm. explain that a little bit? Yeah. So in, in looking at the current uh, kind of transgender sort of situation, which is completely out of control in my opinion, uh, we go back historically and the number of individuals who had gender dysphoria, they really didn't like the, the you know, their, their natal sex and had other, other long-term issues was fairly small. It, it wasn't that many individuals. Um, some of them transitioned and if they'd gone through the screening and all of that, most of them are fine, but it's a very small number and mm -hmm. mostly males. Um, what we have now that is, is mostly, a, mostly natal males, mostly natal males. Right. Okay. That, yeah. that transitioned yeah. and, and did fine in the long term. Right. Um, right. what we've had over the last decade or so is a switch in that. So now we have more, mm -hmm. uh, females, especially adolescent girls who are claiming that they are really, uh, men and should transition. Mm -hmm. Many of them mm -hmm. don't have the history of gender dysphoria, um, sex atypical play patterns, and other sorts of things that have historically been associated with transgender. Um, and a lot of them are getting these ideas through social media, social networks. Um, adolescent girls are very focused on developing a network of social support. And that's really important for their kind of social and psychological functioning to have these best friends and in this network of support. But um, these networks can go off the rails sometimes and mm -hmm. come up with ideas that aren't really um, fully in touch with reality and they can spread within these networks. And I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. And we're seeing, in my opinion, irresponsible professionals aiding and abetting um, you know, hormone treatments or more or surgeries or other types of things. But I think it's, it's a social media, at least to some extent, exaggerated phenomenon that's going to do a lot of harm in the long run. Yes. So you, you wrote in the article that we should worry about false positives, right? Um, so he here's a question that's related to that. And if you don't think you can answer it for whatever reason, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But do you think that the transgender category is an ontologically real category? Because false positive suggests that there are, in mm -hmm. fact, however small the number, there really is mm -hmm. this category of people who are, in some sense, the other sex in their brain, at least. 
do, do you think that that's true? Because some people have made the argument that transgender is just like, it's a category that doesn't exist. Right, right. Yeah, and, and, and that's a great question. And, and that goes back to the, um, the brain patterns and identifying mm-hmm. whether the owner is a male or female, boy or girl or whatever. And as I said, say for guys, there's male typical kind of architecture and most of the guys are kind of at that level, but there are individuals who are out on the other tail that have female typical brains or you have Mm -hmm. women. Most of the women have, you know, female typical brain patterns, but there are those that are out in, you know, the, the, the tail of the distribution that have more male typical brain patterns. There's not a lot of them but they do exist. And so mm-hmm. the, 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 these uh, brain imaging studies and, and these related studies suggest that, yeah, you can have biological males that have female typical brain patterns, probably female typical cognitive abilities and interests, and the same for females. They are um, still biological males or females, but we could see why they would identify more with the opposite sex, be more interested in friendships with the, you know, um, interests that the opposite sex have, um, have strengths and weaknesses of the opposite sex as well. So yes, those, those individuals do turn up in these studies. Yeah. So in that sense, we could say that those individuals, although they are quite rare, historically mm-hmm. might actually be like really in the ontological category, if you will, <clears throat> of transgender. And right. one thing I, I, I know there's a study um, just to illustrate that, like, I do think gender uh, identity can be different from, or potentially could be different from your physical body. Um, mm-hmm. I know there's a study, I think, with 15, I think they were natal males who had pelvic uh, birth defects and they were all raised as girls. And I think out of that group, something like seven or eight ended up identifying as boys, but some of them actually continued as girls. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So there there, there are certain um, pelvic malformations that need surgery early on. And before it was understood that, you know, prenatal hormone exposure really can influence uh, these brain patterns and later gender identity interests and so forth. Um, It's easier to kind of make them, so to speak, female, look like females instead of males, Mm -hmm. even though they're biologically males. And then at that time, it was thought that, well, you just raise them as girls and they'll be fine. Well, they're raised as girls, um, but they weren't fine. You know, they had their favorite, right. one of them I remember is the, the favorite her favorite, uh, interest was, uh, ice hockey, which is not a female typical sort of <laughs> thing. Uh, the right. vast majority, majority of them had, I guess, something like gender dysphoria. Many of them later on mm-hmm. transitioned back to becoming a male. There was maybe one or two who wouldn't respond to things or, stayed a female, but clearly there, there was a disconnect between uh, rearing conditions and their actual biological sex. And they just went back to 
most of them to their biological sex. So would it be a fair summary of your view then that there are real transgender individuals for whom transition may actually be salubrious, but that these individuals are probably exceedingly rare and that right now we should be alarmed by the rapid increase in transgenderism, especially among young girls who appear more vulnerable to, let's say, mass delusions or to social narratives that are popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the social contagion. So in, in the old transgender literature, um, many of these people have been followed up over time. Most of them men transition to women and um, only a small mm-hmm. percentage decide later to detransition or have issues with it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. there, there, are, there are those individuals, as, as you said, not very many, but, but they are out there. Um, but the situation now is, is completely different. The social contagion among, um, adolescents and, you know, it's a way to get, um, you know, attention, you know, social status or whatever within these peer groups. There was one, I think it was a Northeastern school district where 10% of the high school students identified as some type of non-binary transgender, which is right. Which is crazy. I mean, that that has to be a social contagion effect. Right. So the yeah, so so the what's been shocking to me and perplexing is that many progressives who claim that humans are nearly blank slates and are incredibly malleable have found social contagion explanations of this pernicious and they argue strenuously against them. So for whatever reason, on this particular issue, social influences are irrelevant. I I don't know if you've been puzzled by that as well, but I found that puzzling. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of, you know, I think there are multiple things going on. You You know, the the bifurcation of political attitudes and so forth contributes to it. So if conservatives don't like it, we have to like it sort of thing. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I think it also feeds into a narrative of, um, you know, providing uh, unfeathered social support, social, emotional support. So whatever the kid thinks mm-hmm. or feels, we have to be supportive of them rather than saying, well, you know, that's probably a stupid idea. And, you know, right. adolescents and kids have lots of stupid ideas. They don't know what they're many doing. Many stupid have, ideas. Many, many. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're rife with them and they spread among them. Yes. And, uh, you know, adults need to stand up and say, yeah, you know, kind of, I understand people are saying this and so forth, but in fact, you know, that's not happening or this is how it really works, whatever. They're, they're essentially clueless and they're trying to fill each other in and they're making all sorts of mistakes. And, and the progressive narrative is aiding and abetting those mistakes. What would you say before, before wrapping this up with a couple of fun, more entertaining questions, what would you say to the counter argument, which is that the reason we're seeing this increase in transgender uh, individuals is because they were suppressed before because culture didn't recognize them and 
therefore many people who were actually transgender just remained in the the, the metaphorical closet. Right. Well, um, yeah, and probably there is some of that going on that it was suppressed. And so some individuals who are, um, you know, transgender have gender dysphoria and so forth. Um, you know, probably some of it is the lessening of, of social constraints on those types of things. But still, you have to think about the base rates. I mean, the base rates of individuals going back, you know, 30, 40 years in gender clinics, we're talking about one in tens of thousands. So even if right. there was, you know, if, if three-fourths of them were um, suppressed, it still would be fairly right. uncommon. And, and biologically, you would expect it to be fairly uncommon. So the, so the base mm -hmm. rates just suggest that it is, it's even it, with a lifting of social constraints, it's still not going to be common. Yeah, and just, just to give a number, uh, in one study, for example, the number of natal boys who uh, transitioned or who who got treatment for this, it was one in 38,461, <laughs> which right. is exceedingly rare. Um, right. Okay, so thank you for all of that. I want to ask just a few uh, more entertaining questions, if you will, sure. before sure. you leave. So. Now, if you want to hear our guests' answers to the bonus questions that we ask, then you need to become a paid supporter. And you can do that over on our Substack page for just $6.99 a month or $69.99 a year. I promise you it's well worth it. Supporters also get early access to the podcast and to our special filmed conversations, which go up over on the main channel somewhere over there or down below. The link is, is always down below. And of course, if you liked this, then you will love our online magazine. And you can check that out by clicking the link down below. And if you are so inclined, you can find the links to our Twitter and TikTok. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you in the next one. Okay. What is perhaps your most uh, controversial opinion <laughs> that you feel comfortable saying? Oh, my most controversial opinion. Yeah, good question. I don't know. I mean, they're not controversial in my mind, but... <laughs> <laughs> of course they're and, not. <laughs> and, and other people's minds, they might be. <laughs> and so for a lot of our studies and sex differences, we wind up having to submit to three or four journals before an editor will even send it out for review. And I, I, I basically think the stronger the evidence for biological influences on sex differences become, including things like occupational choices, um, the louder mm -hmm. The pushback will be um, right. It's like right. you, you, they have to cover this up, and the way they do it is by doing things in Buzz, Buzzfeed and Twitter and kind of popular media types of things. Right. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of really smart people in academics, although sometimes you wouldn't know it. Um, but <laughs> can we expect a Dave Geary review of James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake anytime soon? Um, <laughs> not anytime soon, maybe in a few years. <laughs>